Hey, Judy. Um, thank you so much for making time to talk today. This is the first ever uh, narrative medicine podcast where I'll be talking to writers, doctors, and yogis about the role of storytelling in the healing process. It's great cool. to... Glad to be here. <laughs> um, I'm really honored to have you as the first guest because you're really the first uh, person that introduced me to this topic and I was hoping I could kind of like zoom out a little bit and just um, have you talk for a little while about what narrative medicine is and, you know, the role it's played in your life and sort of how you came about it and however you want to address that. Yes, I'm glad you used the expression zoom out because there are, I think, multiple ways of looking at the definition of narrative medicine. If you zoom in, um, the... Um, probably the most common use of the word narrative medicine really comes from academia and the medical profession. And it refers to the stories that doctors are charged with receiving from patients and how telling stories between patient and doctor can facilitate care, result in better care, increase compassion. So narrative medicine in that sense is really when the doctor becomes a story re receiver and then takes that story and becomes also the teller of the patient's story. So that's in its, in its smallest, um, I, I always mix up macro and micro, but I'm going to say micro <laughs> definition. <laughs> That's right. I think I got that right. If you, you zoom did. out, and in my perspective, narrative medicine is really just about telling stories of either of the experience of either physical or mental illness or wellness. So the work that I do is really focused on the contributions that patients survivors, family members, caregivers, all these people, the contribution that they can make towards creating this, you know, library, if you will, of, of patient stories so that everybody who has gone through an experience of medical care can find a way to tell their story and to tell it in a fashion that is healing for them. So I think oftentimes, and this I, this I learned through my own experience, so my inauguration into telling stories about um, the medical experience actually came when my daughter, Nadia, who is now 24, but when she was eight, was diagnosed with a Ewing sarcoma. And at that time, I was relatively new as a writer, and I had been writing mostly about family and being a mother, that kind of thing. And so it was, it was sort of natural for me to, to write during that time, and I actually kept a journal in a way that I rarely keep journals because I always start them and then stop and pick up again <laughs> months later. Um, but in this case, I, I basically wrote every day. And when her treatment was over and there was, you know, the good prospect that we were looking at survival, I took a lot of what I had written and read through it and started to write um, the story. 
But the story was a very small-minded story. It was a story about medical procedures, about scars, about um, treatment. It was about pain. Um, but it wasn't about people. It, it didn't tell my story. It didn't tell Nadia's story. It didn't put what happened into any kind of a, a context for my life. So, so I think that one of the what I realized as I was working on this is that every iteration, I realized I had to bring in more things. If I was going to be writing a story about how to be a mother during a time when a child is severely ill, well, I had to look at, well, what kind of mother was I? And why was I that kind of mother, which took me to what kind of mother I had. So I had to tell my mother's story. Um, <laughs> and I had to talk about my, my other children because um, they're all very different. And so the way I was a mother to Nadia was different. You know, she was more perplexing to me perhaps than the other children. And I talked about faith and I talked about nature and the kinds of things that I found healing. And the end result was a much bigger story in which I was actually able to see how I had transformed as a mother. So that's my goal, is to help people tell these larger stories. Wow, you said a lot there. Um, thank you. <laughs> I want to back up a little bit just to be really clear. So I think what I heard you saying is that there's, there's some sense of narrative medicine as a very specific academic um, process but what you're most interested in is empowering patient stories. And I wanted to just spend a little time there and talk about the importance of patient stories. What does that really mean? And how does telling stories help patients? Right. So, you know, a patient story could be anything from a journal entry to a letter to somebody to an essay to a book. So it can, it can, Really, be almost so really anything. written down, though. Yeah, so and it could be written only for yourself, or it could be written to share, be shared with a few people, or again, you can be thinking about writing for a larger um, audience. Let's say what is important to me when people sit down to write is that they that they have they have tools that that they um, that they're not just venting. I mean, venting is, a, is an important step in the, in, in the process. In my second book, Motherhood, sorry, The Right Prescription, <laughs> um, I, I have a chapter on, um, on telling it raw, where you just kind of throw the words like, like splat onto the paper. And that's an important thing to do. And it, it, you may use some of that material in a more refined product or you may not, but that's, you know, that's an important thing to do. And that, that is in a way narrative medicine, but it's not necessarily going to take you to a place of healing or transformation. Um, I, I draw a big distinction between catharsis and transformation. Right. I think catharsis is a momentary phenomenon. Um, you have this experience and you all of a sudden can take a deep breath because you've vented or, or whatever you've done. But 
an hour later, you find you're breathing constricted again because you really you haven't gone anywhere with it. You haven't you haven't moved. So what I try and do, what I try and do through the book, The Right Prescription, and through the teaching that I do, is to help people kind of become better writers. And I don't mean better writers in the sense that they become more publishable. I mean better writers in the sense that they, first of all, have more tools um, at their disposal and that they they put their writing, their story into this larger context. And the reason to write better is to go more deeply. And it, you know, it's like the difference between trying to dig a hole with a spoon versus trying to dig a hole with a shovel. And I try and give people the shovel so that they can, um, so they can, they can mine more of, of their emotions. It's access to, emotions and, and, and not just the facts of the story. And I think that the process of writing, so I, mean, I just had this experience the other day. So the process of writing is really one where you're standing next to yourself while you're writing. Mm-hmm. You're not, you're still at, you're still accessing your heart and your gut and your brain and all that stuff, but you've just got this tiny, tiny bit of distance which gives you the courage to access aspects of your story that if you're trying to tell it in words speaking, you might, you might flinch. You say, Oh, this is too scary to to say, I can't do it. So what happens when people write is oftentimes they can be writing about the, the hardest thing in their lives, but the faces are typically very um, passive and it's when they read back what they've written that the emotion mm. arises. So I run this workshop for homeless mothers, and we had our last session of the year on Tuesday. And um, I'm trying to remember what the assignment. Oh, so I did the bridge exercise with them. So the bridge oh, exercise, because this is the they, first of all, they're in a transition point in their lives anyway. Plus, we were ending for the summer and may not see some of them again. So. I had them do the exercise where they imagine they're on a bridge and what does the bridge look like? Is it a steady bridge? Is it a scary bridge? Is it, um, you know, who's on the bridge, the sounds, what's underneath it, that kind of thing. So How one woman who would, well, so this is, so in this group, they have anywhere from 10 or 15 minutes to write. The, the group is, um, begins with a talk, a rap session run by a social worker. So oftentimes it depends on how that goes and how much time um, and how many people are in the group, but roughly 10 to 15 minutes to write. And one woman who had been coming to the group very often, uh, who never cried in the group, I mean, maybe a little bit once before, and wrote about... Um, uh, kind of that the devil was on her bridge and took things away from her and, and where is, um, you know, she's somewhat religious. So where, um, when is Jesus going to come to her bridge? That kind of thing. And I, you know, I was watching her write it and she said, then when she started to read it, she couldn't speak. She just started crying and, and, and then eventually told us that she didn't have time to tell the whole story, but the story really revolved around a betrayal, you know, someone who had um, professed to love her for many, many years who betrayed her. So 
she never said that in the group. She just she just never ever spoke it, and it was the writing that kind of brought that story out in her. So, is that healing? To me, that's healing. You know, I'm not. I'm, writing doesn't isn't going to cure you of um, of cancer, or, and it's not going to, um, you know, from you know, you still need medicine, <clears throat> but. It's a very healing process in the sense that it does it does help you access emotions and it helps you to discover things about yourself. And you know there are studies that say that writing uh, reduces symptoms of asthma, um, lowers blood pressure. And I've actually been doing an experiment on myself in the blood pressure department. <laughs> I I have. Um, I have white coat and anxiety, you know, when I go to the doctors and they take my blood yeah. pressure, I'm like, oh my God, what's it going to be? And so the last couple <laughs> of times I, I went to the doctor, the, you know, you always have to wait and I always have my writing stuff with me. So I I wrote both both times out in the waiting room mm-hmm. and, or in, even in the exam room waiting for them to come in and both times, I don't have high blood pressure, but you know, it's 53, <laughs> I kind of have to start thinking about it. And, you know, rather than it being like 128 over, 68 or something like that. It was 120, 120, I mean, not 68, whatever the number is. Anyway, it was normal. It was a little bit below normal. So that's my very unscientific um, experiment that shows that writing lowers blood pressure. Excuse excuse me. No problem. May may have to edit that out here. Um, (laughs) So uh, so important these methods on yourself. I was hoping just to interrupt for one minute and move a little bit back to the description of this amazing program you've been doing with the Children's Museum of Manhattan with homeless mothers. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've taken mm-hmm. your class and I've worked with you for a few years now and I've, I've taken many classes and worked with many, many writers. And I think you have a unique ability to create a safe space and really create an environment where a diverse group of people, extremely vulnerable for different reasons, feel very empowered mm-hmm. to to share their stories and work on the craft. And I was wondering, you know, Motherhood Exaggerated, which you've talked about a little bit, your, your first book and your memoir came out in 2012, but you had been a writer long before then. And I was wondering when you started your own personal practice of writing to either seek catharsis or healing or when you first experienced that? Um, kind of late in life, I suppose. Um, I've always been a huge reader. Um, I've always been a good writer, but I've, I, I never did personal writing. Um, so I think it was probably in when my children were first born. Um, and I stopped working full time. Actually, I just kind of stopped working. So when I won't say full time, I stopped working. I had three little kids at home, plus a puppy. Not sure why I got the puppy at that time, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. And um, I, for years up in Martha's Vineyard where we spend time, I would go back and forth by this sign that says Chilmark Writing Workshop. And after multiple years of doing this, I decided that I would take the workshop. Um, so that was, you know, maybe 28, 29 years ago. And I can't say at that time that I automatically 
realized that writing was healing, that writing could do all the things for me that I think that it does now. Because I, you know, like most people who start, I was very self-conscious about what I was doing. I was very judgmental of myself um, and also made it hard for me to listen to other people's stories. I I wasn't open. Um, I wasn't actually generally an open person uh, for a good part of my um, earlier life. I was very shy and uncomfortable and um, awkward, I think, in social situations. And so I really felt out of place. Actually, in the, um, in the opening of the right prescription at the very beginning, I use an example of Nancy Arany, who is um, now my uh, longtime teacher and forever friend, um, used to give the opening si- assignment was called Getting Here. And you would respond to that however you wanted to. And I, in the right prescription, I have kind of a, a, a uh, an example, I uh, can't find the word that I'm looking for, but I wrote what I can remember what I wrote <laughs> at that time. And it was basically a stream of consciousness about how awkward and uncomfortable I felt being there. And and so that, I think, is important that we acknowledge each other in, in ourselves when we sit down to write, that it's uncomfortable, um, particularly when, you know, if you're going to a group for the first time, it's really important that that your words are valued. And if you can't value them for yourself initially, then other people have to value them for you and until you get it, <laughs> that, that you can do it too. And it's usually a, a pretty quick process. Um, not that the that self-consciousness ever goes away, but as long as everybody in the group is responding positively to what you've written and said, as Nancy Yarani would say, you know, tell tell the people what you loved, um, then you know, then the writer is going to understand that what they have to say is is uh, often quite beautiful and moving, and it, it and you have to keep it. So so that's the first thing is to to make it a very positive experience for everybody. And that you that you model for other people, you know, like good ways to react. The other rule, then I think we've both experienced this in, in writing groups, is safety also means that you're not required to tell more of your story than you are ready to tell. And it's important to keep the responses focused on the writing, not on, you know, getting involved in the story that you're telling or asking for, uh, why did you react that way? Or, you know, I, I, I kind of felt like you were not, you know, being honest there, or I'd like to know what happened afterwards. You know, you just kind of have to accept what the, what the, what part of the story the person wants to tell and don't push for more. If you get into more advanced workshops and you have people who really want to improve their writing and are looking for guidance, then you might say, you know, that was really interesting that you said right there. I'd love to know more. And that person will either take it or leave it. 
But in the earlier stages, you don't ask people to tell more of their story than than they are ready to tell, and that that's that's really important. That you don't you don't judge their actions. You don't say, "Well, that was a stupid thing you did," or and you also don't therapize. You don't you don't try and and this was hard for me. You know, I'm a mother. I want to solve everybody's problems, <laughs> and it was really really hard for me not to try and mm. solve the problems and 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 actually in the 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 group of the homeless mothers that I uh, sat with when we said our goodbyes the other day I said to them you know sometimes I don't know if what we do at the museum uh, I kind of wonder why we do it you know we're not finding you housing we're not um, giving you jobs and I don't always know what the what the benefit is of of what we're doing and and then kind of they open up with these amazing stories and i just have to say you know that's the part of their lives that we can't we can touch i i i want to put a roof over everybody's head I, you know i want to invite them all over for dinner i want to feed them i want to babysit their children um i can't do that but i can help them speak and that's the limit of, of, of what I can do. And just to accept that that is, that's, that's valuable. Well, it's extremely Thank valuable you what you're doing. Yeah, well, to move a little from, you know, the first book where you, you talked really beautifully about your process of going from a place of venting to a refinement. And um, I think you work closely with Nancy on many drafts for Motherhood Exaggerated. And coming full circle with your second book, which came out last fall in 2015, The Right Prescription, which is a series of writing prompts. Um, and now in the teaching that you're doing, I wanted to talk a little bit about the program coming up at Kerpalu that you'll be paired with Nancy, which is such an amazing um, coming full circle. I didn't quite realize you had been working together for 28, 29 years. I mean, I knew it had been a while. Mm -hmm. um, and the role of bringing uh, this type of work to a place like Kerpalu and what it means to you to, to pair with Nancy as co-teachers. Um, pairing with Nancy is, I think we're both just like really fascinated to, to do this <laughs> and, and um, very excited, but, um, but maybe just talk a little before, bit about so. what the program is because I haven't introduced it at all. But this will be the first ever of its kind, and you're leading it. What? Oh, I've what, what we're doing up at Kripala? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, first of all, for those listening to this podcast, we have to acknowledge Lisa as the designer, presenter, overseer, master of the uh, narrative medicine program, the first ever one up at Kripala, which will be. Uh, launching June 19th and run through June 24th. And um, the, the program includes these amazing panels that you, Lisa, have put together in the mornings to talk about the, you know, kind of what narrative medicine is, different people working in the field, the spiritual side of it, hearing from doctors um, and different writers. And then in the afternoons, um, the participants will be in a writing workshop. And so Nancy and I are uh, leading these writing workshops. And 
we're not going to be teaching um, together in a group. We'll be, we'll be parallel playing and, and, and ha- she'll have a group and I'll have a group. And then the next day we'll switch them and go back and forth that way. And there is something to me really, yeah, I don't know if we're going to be in the same room or if we're going to be outside or, you know, exactly how it's going to be, but there's just something really powerful to me to think about the two of us kind of doing the same thing at the same time. I learned a lot about how I teach from Nancy, um, and uh, but we are but we're different. Uh, we do slightly different kinds of things, although our philosophies are almost identical. And so it's kind of. Can you really talk a little bit about the exciting. emphasis on positive feedback? That's something that you and Nancy are uh, devoted to. That not a lot of writing teachers adhere to. Right. Right. So there's a lot of different attitudes towards um, towards feedback. There are some teachers who just have people write and there is no reading allowed at all. And the, the philosophy of those teachers is that knowing that you're going to have to read your story to someone is automatically inhibiting. Um, I believe that Writing and reading, as I alluded to before, are two very different processes. And even when I'm alone and I'm writing something, I will read it to myself um, aloud. And that is often where you can see where you're flinching and and recognize the emotions that you've reached. Reading aloud also in um, this you know, way of doing it that I've learned from Nancy is an opportunity for people to validate your voice, to say, I hear you. That's amazing. You know, the way you said that, um, you know, to talk about insights or to talk about, um, you know, the poetry of the language, word choice, rhythm, um, flow, you know, whatever it is, it, it, every, you can find something wonderful in, in anything that someone writes. In the shelter program, um, I've had a, a woman write like three sentences. One of them has, mm. you know, had a ray of sunshine in it. So you can always, you can always say, you can always find something to say. And then the next time, maybe that person will write four sentences. And so, you know, people, it's like they sit up taller when, and I've experienced it myself. I mean, that I, if I think if I were in a different kind of workshop initially, I don't think I would have had the courage to go further. Now, Nancy and I both know that, that this process is real, that, that, that this stage is really just the beginning of the process, that, that the workshops that we run are about process. They're not about the final product. And that, I also work with people who want to create a final product and that's, that's different. You, you're still being, you're still being very positive. You're always teaching from what's working um, and then looking at, well, this is really great. How can, how can we make it better? That's not what we'll be doing. Kripalu. When someone writes for 10 or 15 minutes, they're not going to write a masterpiece. Well, some people will, but you know, <laughs> I don't count them. <laughs> I'm too jealous of them to. No, just kidding. Um, you know, you're you're they're, they're going to write. 
you know, what they're going to write. And you're not going to say, you know, I, you mentioned this character in the beginning and we get to the end and you, you drop this character. I don't know what happened to them. You know, that, that's not the kind of uh, feedback that you provide. You, you really want people to understand that their voices are beautiful and, and should be listened to. And so everybody at the beginning, that's the ground rule is that you only give positive feedback. Um, well, I can't. And, I can't and, wait for it. Yeah, me too. With your permission, <laughs> I'd like to read just a little paragraph um, of your work from the last, from the introduction of the right prescription, and um, kind of find out more about the the work you have coming up this summer and in the fall. In the introduction, okay. you write, "I don't believe we can move on from trauma, but we need to be able to move with what has happened." Oops, I'm going to say that again. I don't believe we can move on from trauma, but we need to be able to move with what has happened to us. Writing can be a companion that takes our arm as we walk. It can heal or nourish or fortify. A recently completed study showed that walking through an area of trees and greenery allows your brain to recover from fatigue. Here you are invited to walk within your own story following your mind as it journeys through what has happened, marveling at the scenery of your revelations and your insights. I just love that. And it... that, is what, that is what writing is. Um, not always. You know, I don't, I don't want to romanticize the experience of writing. I think that's also um, something that scares people away, that they have visions of the perfect place, being in the flow, um, mm -hmm. you know, everything that comes out is um, are pearls of wisdom. You know, it's, there's a lot of, um, as Annie Lamott says, a lot of shitty first drafts. There's a lot of um, dreck, you know, that, that it's all valuable. I, and, and I think that, um, you know, nobody that those are necessary stages to go through, but in the long run, um, for me, writing is a companion. I mean, even physically, I write with paper and pencil and I always have a notebook and a pencil wherever I go. And it is my companion. Um, and it's always there when I need it. I, I am not a disciplined writer in the sense that I have the same time that I write every day in the same place. And, you know, I don't, I don't tell anybody, but I don't write every day. You know, sometimes I just can't. I have, I have other things that, that I do that enrich my writing, but just also just enrich my life. Um, so, I am, it's also important not to put that kind of pressure on yourself that says, you know, I have to do this. Um, it's kind of like practicing meditation, I suppose. I mean, for me, I actually do meditate every day. I find that easier sometimes than, than writing every day. But, um, you know, for some people, you know, three days a week is right. Some people, when you start meditating, you do five minutes because you can't sit for any longer than that. And then you work up. Well, writing is the same thing. It is a practice. Um, 
I used to be a flute teacher when I started taking flute at the age of eight. And when I was eight years old, you know, I, I didn't have the stamina, the breath control, the whatever to practice more than 10 or 15 minutes. You know, when I was my almost profession, I was practicing for hours. So it is, um, it just, Do you I, practice I just can't anymore? stress enough. No, I don't. I don't. I had a, um, a jaw problem. And uh, whenever I try to play, it just um, it exacerbates the whole thing. I do miss it. Um, I'm probably missing it more now than when I stopped playing, which was a number of years ago. Um, but, you know, I, I just think it's important for people to... I think, the, and I'm going back to the flute again, what, what I realized when I wasn't going to be a professional flutist was how can the flute still be valuable to me, even though I wasn't right in playing um, for this larger purpose. And I think, you know, there were a lot of parallels for me between the writing and and the flute playing. Um, So again, I, I just think what turns a lot of people off from writing is this expectation that you have to write a certain amount of time every day. You have to have the exact right place to write. Um, and that you, um, have to have this, um, that you're in this, as I said before, that you're in this flow all the time. And, you know, I don't want people to put pressure on themselves like that. I mean, that is the beginning of the right prescription is the, the first few chapters are just about setting expectations and what do you need? What do you really need to write? If you write with paper, you need a paper and pencil and a pen. If you write with a computer, you have to make sure your computer's charged. I mean, that that's, that's essentially it. And everything else is, is frosting as far as I'm concerned. Another thing um, I really love about the right prescription is how much you empower the reader to use the book as needed and however is desired. And just to sort of, um, poke around to whatever prompts or, but it's not something mm-hmm. that has to be done a certain way in order to, um, benefit. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, um, I mean, there are some people, the book is organized in a way that if someone does want to take it from beginning to end, um, it makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, the first part of the book is, um, kind of warm ups and different kinds of tools like metaphor and personification and writing from the third person perspective, that kind of thing. But I'm making it sound much more academic than it is. It's not, this is all, this is, this is, this is not school. Um, and I use a lot of my own personal reflections in, in, in the book as well. So, well, I think um, we're almost, we're almost sort of wrapping up, but I did want to find out what you had coming up and how people can, every time I talk about you and the right prescription and your writing classes and the idea of patient stories and healings, everybody just wants to know how they can, how they can do this and how well, they can, they sign can up. buy the book <laughs> or they can buy Nancy's book or they can buy both books. Um, and, um, so uh, in the next few months, I am actually on Wednesday, this is June 15th, or if, any, if anybody's in New York, if this podcast is going to be broadcast by then, um, I'm doing an event at Shakespeare and Company here on Lexington Avenue and 68th Street with another writer named Nancy Kelton on the topic of memoir and writing about personal experience. And actually establishing a really nice relationship with Shakespeare and Company. I'm going to be doing a writing workshop there on uh, uh, July 11th, 
just a one-off. And then in the fall, I'll be launching a, a workshop series there um, that will, uh, I think it's like six to eight sessions or something like that. Um, so that's going to be a really nice uh, relationship. And we may be starting a workshop series for teens as well. Um, so that's that's kind of a, a nice evolution for me in the whole teaching process. Mm-hmm. I also teach through my synagogue, uh, Rome Mu, um, and that's also, um, th- that workshop is based upon the right prescription. The workshop at Shakespeare and Company is more general memoir. Um, so I have that coming up uh, in the fall. That will resume again in the fall. Most of everything is going to be resuming again in the fall because I will be on Martha's Vineyard for the summer and I need to spend that time to do some of my own writing <laughs> um, yes. so that I can, you know, keep myself uh, creative and have the juices flowing. But I do have a website, uh, judithhannonwrites.com and that's Hannon, H-A-N-N-A-N. And you know, people can check in there to see what's going on. Um, I'm also doing a series of radio broadcasts through Rare Birdlet and um, and those I, I you can follow me on Twitter at Judith Hannon and that's another way to, to hear about what's going on um, so I don't know does that cover all the bases I think you covered all the bases um, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything you think I might have missed or any books um, or reading sure, you want to mention I'm sure once we disconnect, I will think of a million things to say. <laughs> I, do, I mean, I do have a recommended reading list. I don't remember when it, whether it's up on the website or not. I think it, it is. might be. I, it uh, looks yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's also some sample prompts on the website. So if anybody wants to check those out before they um, commit to buying the book, those, those are there as well. Um, so I just um, I just kind of keep keep reading and keep writing, um, and I don't know. I just want everybody to do the same thing. But I guess I guess to end with, what I'd really like to say is I want patient narratives to be respected. I want them, and I want them to re- be respected as literature. Not just because, I mean, yes, they're incredibly valuable stories, but I want them to be considered as fine literature. And that's why I talk about writing better. And it's not, you know, because because then you can tell a better story and then people are going to read this story again, not for glorification. Believe me, I'm not getting any glorification from motherhood exaggerated, but because it's, I think, a well-written story, um, it's respected by the people who, who do read it. And it does, it's, it's universal, it's specific, but also universal enough that, um, that it can appeal to many, many people. And I think that narratives of illness and recovery sometimes are kind of lumped together, oh, as those, I don't know, whiny people or whatever. And, and even if you're, you're self-publishing a book, it's just so important that you tell a good story. And that's, that's what I want people to do. I, don't, I think it's fabulous that doctors tell 
patients' stories, and there are amazing books out there written by doctors that, and just thank God that those doctors exist and that narrative medicine mm-hmm. programs exist. But I want patient stories to be viewed in the same way. So that's 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 the end of my call to action. <laughs> well, amen. I um super inspired by everything that you do, and I think you are on a road to help so many people. Well, thanks, Lisa. Um, Well, I think that's about it for now. I'm sure that we'll be doing this again because I love talking to you and there's so much happening um, in this field. But let's, I guess, wrap up for now and see what happens on the editing room. Okay. Sounds good. (laughs) Thanks, Um, Thanks, Judy. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.